Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Two weeks ago, 300 people gathered at a hotel on the outskirts of Rome in a place called Tivoli. And they came from 28 or 29 different countries, spoke multiple languages. And at the back of the room, you can see here, sort of this end of the room, uh, there were translators sitting at uh, tables with headsets on, translating what they could hear into different uh, regional languages. And other people were listening in on their headsets. It was a bit like a meeting of the UN sitting at the back. Now, looking around the room, you could see that these people were from vastly different backgrounds. Yet, they were united. They were united in love for Jesus Christ and united in a passion to make him known, to make much of him, to bring fame and glory to him on the continent of Europe. This was a gathering of a a network called Acts 29. And we were gathered to praise Jesus and to pray and plan about how we could multiply more churches in this continent. So that this great continent of Europe with more than 750 million people would be reached with the good news of Jesus. And through Europe, other parts of the world that are even less reached. It was a great privilege to be there with Melissa and my wife and with Greg Wilson. Sadly, Christina wasn't able to come this time. And James Walden, who preached here two weeks ago. And one of the speakers at the conference drew attention to um, the fact of our location which was a few miles away from the center of Rome. Now just think about that uh, from the point of view of history. Rome, which 2,000 years ago was the world power and was known for its raw supremacy and its will to dominate and its ability to organize and ruthlessly overcome all opponents, apart from the Scottish. Uh, They had to just build a wall and keep the Scots out, but everybody else, they totally dominated. And then think about what, here's a symbol of Roman power. This is incredible. The Colosseum, a vast structure which gathered tens of thousands of people together for entertainment that was absolutely bloodthirsty and brutal. They could bring in people and have them butchered in front of them for sport. The Colosseum, a symbol of Roman power. And now think of just what it, what it is now, a place where tourists take selfies in front of the Colosseum. I was thinking, who is that tired old middle-aged guy standing next to Melissa. Oops, it's me. Now just think, that's Rome, what it was and what it is now. Um, Think of the significance of an international group of Christian people joining together to pray to Jesus in the shadow of the ruins of a once great empire. See, Rome was called the eternal city. They believed it would last forever. But we know there's only one eternal kingdom in this world. And in the next, and its Lord is not called Caesar. His his Lord is called Jesus Christ. We just sang it, the Lord of history. Now today, as Liz has explained, we have a short service because we want to be good neighbours to the Chinese school. And they have a very important um, prize giving once a year. And I'm planning a big sermon series in the book of Romans starting next week. But I thought I'd take this opportunity, this this window today, to think with you about something that is a, a core part of our vision and values as a church. And it always has been since our church was started. How many years ago, Joe and Gail? 
12 years ago, our church was started. It was called The Plant then. And this was something that was, that was in the, the DNA even when they only had eight people. We are committed to multiplying churches in Manchester and around the world under God. We are committed to multiplying churches in Manchester and around the world under God. Now, the, the jargon that's often used in Christian circles for multiplying churches is, is planting. And that comes from a passage in the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians 3. And it, here's, here's where this planting language comes from. This is the Apostle Paul writing. What, after all, is Apollos? Here's another colleague. What is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, started the message. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. He's writing to a church and saying, you're kind of God's field, God's the one planting, uh, watering you, making you grow. You're, you're God's place. So we're, I just want to now reveal my, my aim today in this sermon. I'm not riding my private hobby horse. My aim today, I want to excite you about church planting multiplying churches, and I want to persuade you that it's actually a normal part of healthy church life. I want to excite you about it and persuade you that it's a normal part of healthy church life. I've got three points, and regulars here will probably be a bit shocked to, to realize that these points do not start with the same letter. They don't alliterate. In fact, they're not similar in any way. The first point is Acts and Romans. The second point is how the West was won. And the third point is local takeaway. Acts and Romans. Just turn with me to the front of your Bible. Um, right to the front, I mean. And you've got a blank page. And then the next couple of pages, you'll find the contents. You'll find the contents there. <clears throat> and I'm aware that in, in our church, it's brilliant. We have people who've been around church their whole lives. And some people who've only been to church today for the first time. So if you look at that contents page, you can see the Bible is actually a library of books. There's 66 different books. And it's divided into two main parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then the New Testament section, which has uh, 27 books, has starts, uh, look at the order there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I'll, I'll tell you a little rhyme to remember them by. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Acts and Romans follow on. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which are the stories, the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus and his life and ministry. And then you follow straight on with Acts and Romans. Now, these Acts are the activities and the actions and the deeds of the early Christian movement. And there's been some debate about whose Acts they are. Traditionally, the book is called the Acts of the Apostles. The apostles were a special group of leaders that Jesus handpicked, commissioned, and gave his authority to lead his church. But some people have pointed out, well, these apostles, they only really get going when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit drives everything that goes on through the book. Holy Spirit is God, the third person in the Godhead, coming to be with us and be present with us and lead us and guide us and empower us for mission. So maybe it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
But then there's always another wise guy, isn't there? Other people have pointed out, well, it's Jesus who began the work of rescuing the world in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the Acts are actually Jesus' continuing work to build his church. So maybe it should be called the Acts of Jesus. Now, I want to have my cake and eat it. What we should, maybe we could think of it like this. This is the continuing acts of Jesus through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. The continuing acts of Jesus through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you a really quick summary of the book of Acts. So turn with me to page 1092, or if you've got your own Bible, to the beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 1, and you see how the story begins, and I want to share the two bookends. So chapter 1, and then see what happens by the end. So chapter 1, um, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the d- disciples, the followers of Jesus are all gathered, and they're waiting. And uh, in verse 4 it says, On one occasion, while Jesus, he, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And at that, Jesus left them. So Jesus is telling them what's going to happen next, which is this. They're going to be witnesses. You know, you have a witness in a court of law, somebody who testifies to what they've seen and heard. And these guys have been with Jesus. So he says, you're now going to go and be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And then further out, Judea and Samaria, which is geographically spreading and ethnically different because it's getting beyond just the Jews. And then even to the ends of the earth, so the very far corners of the world, to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, like most of us here, that they would spread this message to the whole world. So how did it go? Turn to the end of the book and you find out where they got up to. So right to the end of the book, Acts chapter 28. And right at the end there, it's page 1127. You see where they end up. So by this time, the story's focused in on this one guy called Paul, who's one of the apostles, one of the leaders. And in verse 16, it says, Paul <coughs> excuse me, has come to Rome. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So he's under house arrest. And then the last few verses of Acts, starting at verse 28. Therefore, this is Paul speaking, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Dot, dot, dot. Because that's not the end of the story, is it? You see what's happened. They've, they've, they've started out in Jerusalem, a small group, and now it's spread and spread and spread. And now the, the, the good news, the gospel, is able to spread freely in Rome. This is so significant because Rome is the cultural hub of the world empire. So if you could reach Rome with the good news, you could build, and if you could build a fruitful and healthy church there, you can reach the world. 
but notice that it ends with Paul under house arrest. He's speaking freely, but the Christian church is still small. So the story really has only just begun, and it was an incredibly hostile and challenging environment for the early Christians. We should never overlook the fact that it's a miracle Christianity survived its, days early, its early days. It's a miracle that Christianity survived at all in the Roman Empire. It was a religious context where everybody else, except the Jews, worshipped multiple gods. And if you didn't worship multiple gods, you were at the very least weird, probably some kind of nutter, maybe even treasonous and treacherous to the state, and nobody really wanted to have, go to your dinner parties. So it was a challenging environment for them. In fact, a lot of pagans thought that Christians were actually atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods. The whole culture was built around loyalty to the emperor. In fact, you had to worship Caesar. Say Caesar is Lord and make an offering to him. But the Christians couldn't do that. They had to say Jesus is Lord. And sometimes they were killed for not worshipping Caesar. Now, there was an ebb and flow of history. Sometimes the church was free. Other times it was, de- it was devastatingly persecuted. And it operated in an environment of misunderstanding. I already said that sometimes they thought Christians were atheists. Other times, actually, people thought Christians were cannibals. Do you know why? Because when they met together, they ate the body and blood of Jesus, whoever he was. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. So the pe- people thought they must be cannibals. So they're in this really challenging, difficult, hostile environment. So what happened? Now just look at these statistics. This is from Rodney Stark, who is uh, the Distinguished Professor of Social Sciences at Baylor University. He reckons, I don't know how he's got these numbers, right? In 100 AD, there were about 7,500 Christians, which was 0.0126% of the Roman Empire, okay? In 100 AD. 200 AD, there were 217,000 Christians, but still only 0.36%. So a third of a percent of the Roman Empire. What about in 350 AD? 33,822,000 Christians and eight. <laughs> Which is about 56% of the Roman Empire. Now you know that 88% of statistics are made up on the spot. However... Dr. Stark, who's a distinguished professor, has done his homework. And he points out that by the year 400, the Christian faith was the leading faith in the whole Roman Empire. Now, how on earth did that happen? How did it happen? How did a despised minority religion that was just out in the margins and nobody was interested in it, based on the preaching of an obscure Galilean carpenter become a faith that by some reckonings there's more than two billion followers in the world today how did it happen how was the west won? Oh, there's one more thing i want to show you this is great this um you can see this for free oxford road manchester museum next to the university this um piece of uh, pottery really, has got letters carved on it. And they reckon it comes from probably the second century, maybe earlier. And it was found in Manchester, which was called Mancunian or something like that. And this is what 
is called a, a, a word square. And if you rearrange these, these letters, you get the word pater noster, our father, which is how the Lord's Prayer begins. And it's thought by some scholars that this was a kind of discreet way for a Christian person to let others know that they were a follower of Jesus. Because it was there outside their house, this stone in the wall. I think somebody was going to throw this in a skip in the 70s in Manchester and it was rescued. It's the earliest evidence of Christianity in this country. And there it is. So here's the thought. Just put your mind around this. I mean, I think this is great. Here we are in 2016. And it... Uh, maybe 150, 175 AD, some Christian came to Manchester and they had their stone and they were trying to gather a group around them. And here we are all these years later in the same place. Maybe even we are the answer to their prayers. Isn't that wonderful? How did it happen? How, did, how was the West one? Well, there's no one single answer. Um, some people have pointed out that the love and the mercy of Christians was so exceptional in the Roman world that it persuaded many people to join them and take them seriously. And James uh, preached on that a couple of weeks ago here. Other people have pointed out there was a political dimension. So there were changes in the leadership in the Roman Empire, increasing toleration. But it wasn't until the 4th century that Christianity was officially recognized as a religion. So how did it happen? How did it grow and grow and flourish like it did? I think one answer is often overlooked, and it's breathtakingly simple and it's actually found in the Bible itself. The church spread and flourished through vigorous church planting. The church spread and flourished through vigorous church planting. In other words, the mission method of the New Testament was to plant new churches. Now to some of you that may seem very obvious but not to all because we need to say that there are lots of other kinds of good mission work other than church planting. Mission can be carried out through medical work. Some of you have done that. Mission can be carried out through education and building schools and setting up universities. Can be carried out through humanitarian projects, taking aid and relief. Can be carried out through Bible translation. The biggest missions agency in the world, I believe, is, is a Wycliffe Bible Translators. Can be carried out through campaigns where people go and preach the, the, the gospel and call for a response. Now, all of those things are good, Valuable and essential, but the primary, primary means of mission in the New Testament is actually church planting. I want to just demonstrate that to you uh, for a few minutes because the best and earliest guide to this church planting exercise is the book of Acts itself. So turn with me again to the bit that Liz read, chapter 13, and we'll see here how it all begins. We're going to take a few minutes to, to, review a, to view a snapshot of two situations and see how these apostles started to reach an empire. So here we are, Acts chapter 13, and I'll just read it again. In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now Antioch is, was a hub, key city in the country of Syria. And here at the start of Acts chapter 13, we see that the church there is already established. They've got leaders, they've got prophets and teachers. It's a healthy church, it's fruitful, it has solid leadership. 
And it has a range of gifts there in the leadership to enable it to do its work. But just look at the diversity of these people. Now, what we may not immediately jump out to us. So Barnabas, he's a Jewish man. He's actually a, a Levite from a kind of um, traditional Jewish background. Simeon, called Niger, he's, most scholars think he's an African. He's probably a North African. Manaean, he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He's from the upper class. He's brought up in a king's household. And then there's Saul, who was a leading Jewish scholar. So you have in this group ethnic and social and educational diversity, which reflected the city they were part of. They weren't just a, a middle class or a lower class or an upper class church, and they weren't just one kind of ethnic church. They were diverse. And notice too that these leaders meet to wait on God. They fast, means they stop eating so that they can focus and clear their diary and clear the decks and devote themselves and their attention to prayer and seeking God's will. In other words, in this work of church planting, dependent prayer is crucial. But let me just point out, we shouldn't assume that dependent prayer means we're completely passive and we never make any plans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he planned to come to Rome many times, but he was prevented from doing so. So a spirit-dependent leader is somebody who plans. They make decisions, they have purposes, but those plans are subject to change under God because God's the one who calls the shots. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he intends to stay in a certain area because a wide door of opportunity is open for his work. There again you see Paul making plans depending on how he reads the situation, dependent on God. So back to Acts chapter 13. Notice that it's actually God who calls them to send some gifted leaders on mission. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now Barnabas and Saul, these were, these were just the last people they want to send. Barnabas is just the, the, the most warm, kind, generous, loving, cuddly guy you could imagine. He was called the son of encouragement. He was such a great leader. Everybody loved Barnabas. And Saul, this guy's like the theologian thinker and speaker. and, 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 and He's just a genius. So there they are in their church meeting. And God basically communicates to them, send those two guys off. And I can imagine they're all sitting there thinking, couldn't we send somebody else? What about, um, you know, Manaean and Simeon? They're pretty good. <laughs> so it's interesting here. They do fast and prayed a bit more. <laughs> Let's fast and pray some more about this. <laughs> it's pretty clear they have to send them. So off they send these two. Now it's really amazing. Acts chapter 13, if you look, down in your Bible, uh, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and they sailed from there to Cyprus. Now, this sailing is really significant because it's the first time in history that anybody crosses a body of water to take the good news of Jesus to another people. Up to this point, it's all been in the same landmass. So here they've actually crossed the waters to go to a new place, to Cyprus, first of all. And here we see this deliberate crossing of boundaries with the good news. So, just to recap for a moment, what have we learned so far? One, there's a well-established church which has godly leadership, and that overflows into mission. 
Two, they intentionally seek God and ask his will for the church and its mission. And three, when God leads them, it is costly. There's a costly investment. They send some key leaders and they, they, they must have backed them financially as well. So let's not underestimate how hard it was for these people to send Barnabas and Saul. But here we are, we got the gospel. So we're thankful for their sacrifice. And what did Barnabas and Saul do? Well, this was the first of three great missionary journeys that started in the mid-40s and ended up, as we read in Rome, maybe about AD 60. And on this first journey, they start in Syria and they sailed to Cyprus. And from there, they traveled and sailed again. And they went to what we call Turkey. And then I want to pick up kind of phase two in, over the page in chapter 14. So if you look over at Acts 14, verse 21 to 23, we'll see what happens at the end of that first journey. Acts 14, 21 to 23. They preached the gospel in that city and they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas, this is crucial, appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. See, there's three phases here. The first is going with the message, the good news, and gospeling the whole city, talking to people, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes in small groups, sometimes in a lecture theater, sometimes in the marketplace, sometimes in the synagogue, sometimes in a, uh, preaching in a large forum. They, they take this good news, they gospel. And some people are won over to it. And then the second phase is there's an incorporation into community. They strengthen them and encourage them to remain true. They bring them in together. And this is about building new believers up in the faith. Gathering them together. These people don't simply go on living life as they did before. They become part of a new community. And finally, there is leadership development. So in in verse 23, they appoint elders, leaders for them in each church. And they train them. And then they hand the, the work of leadership on and they leave. In other words, these Leaders, Paul, Barnabas, organize the converts into new church plants. And these churches have their own leadership and their own structure. Verse 22, he's meeting with disciples. By verse 23, they are now churches. In other words, going, crossing a boundary, going somewhere that needs the good news, starting a new church is completely natural in the book of Acts. It's a normal part of healthy church life, along with everything else we do, doing community, preaching, worshipping, caring for one another, evangelism. The fifth thing would be church planting. Now that is the New Testament model of mission. And let me put this a bit provocatively. The New Testament doesn't know of any mission that does not result in the planting of churches. So one of our members here, Martin, is leading an incredible translation project. To, his, translate, his project has led to millions of people being able to access the Bible in their own language across amazing parts of the world. But the end prod- goal of Martin's work is not just to give people the Bible, but so that they would be called to Jesus and gathered into churches. 
So in a sense, your work is penultimate. The New Testament doesn't know any mission that doesn't result in a planting of churches, and planting churches is seen as healthy and natural, not a trauma. This is what drove the Christian movement. This is how the West was won. And by the way, this is how the East is being won. I always have to speak, look at Donald when I speak about the East. Because experts reckon that 4 million, maybe more, Chinese people every year become Christians. Do you know the average size of an unregistered church in China is the size of the number of people you can fit into a flat? Somebody, a Chinese Christian told me once, we can squeeze about 50 in, but that, by that stage people start to notice. So we have to start another one. See that? Reproducing household churches. The church in India is growing in ways that we rarely hear about. One Indian leader told me three years ago, he reckoned 8% of the Indian people are now followers of Jesus. That's 8% of a billion people. But again, these are rapidly reproducing household churches. They don't always get counted by the official statisticians. So there's a, a, a bit of a global view and also a historical view, thinking about how God's mission was carried out through church planting in the New Testament. But what finally about local takeaways? Local takeaways. And I don't mean those places that sell fried chicken and have that just eat sticker in the window. What is the local takeaway? Well, for Grace Church, it must mean that church planting should be as natural to us as one of our other activities not a traumatic one-off thing that we do because we have to and we never want to do it again. You know, a friend of ours recently donated a kidney to his brother-in-law. I mean, hats off to him. I don't think he'll do it twice. <laughs> you don't want a church plant to be like donating a kidney. You know, it's worthy, but it will kill us if we ever do it again. So it, although it should be natural, it, it, it must make sure it's not done tra in a traumatic way. Why should it be natural? This is how Manchester will be reached. Now, we, we're, we're not from Manchester. Um, my family were, my family from Oldham. And when we moved up here, um, I was amazed to see how few churches there were that loved the Lord Jesus, preached the Bible, and held on to the gospel. Now, there are lots of good churches, but there were actually comparatively few given the size of the city. The fastest growing city outside London, 2.6 million people in Greater Manchester. A city that is growing faster than the churches are growing. It's a hub city, isn't it? A place that influences a whole region, the northern powerhouse. Not only actually regional, but international. The number of people, influential people from all around the world who come here to study it's breathtaking. It is a fast-growing, international hub city. How can we reach in for Jesus, for his fame and glory? By the vigorous planting of churches. Now, there are some possible objections that might be in your mind at this moment. I'm going to try and surface them. Uh, some might be thinking, why do we need more churches? Aren't there loads already? If you look around, there's lots of church buildings. Well, the reality is, a lot of those church buildings house small, dying congregations that in some cases have left the, good news, the, the true gospel behind a long time ago. 
And for the size of the city, only a very small number of churches are reaching people. So Manchester people, uh, estimates are that there are about 2% of Manchester inhabitants who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and be born again Christians, maybe 2%. So there, there may be, look like there are lots of churches, but we're not reaching the vast majority of people. A second objection, if you've been around for a little while, might be, well, we tried it before and uh, we didn't always succeed. So we had, our church had to close a plant a few years ago and that might make us scared of trying it again. Well, let me say that um, just... If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And because we've uh, had some experiences that have, have not worked out, we've learned a lot. Three things that I've learned, at least three lessons. One is when you plant a church, you need a dedicated leader whose attention is that church, who lives in the area where the church is. Secondly, you need the right group to start the church. The right mix of skills and ages and experience and gifts and a good enough size to give it a good chance of survival. And the third thing that I've benefited from personally is assessment and coaching and training through a network called Acts 29. We will do those things, God willing, when we plant a church. A third objection could be this. Well, why don't we just build Grace Church up? It's great here. Why do we have to think about reaching out somewhere else? Couldn't we just let this church get really big? And I would say to you, this isn't either or. Uh, we certainly don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg so that church planting is so traumatic we never do it again. But at the same time, we do want to be generous so that we reach out and, and have a heart for other parts of the city. So finally, I want to share this with you. Greg will be sharing more about this uh, later today in our members meeting. So if you're not a member... Um, Please become one soon, and then you can be part of those meetings. And also, we'll be sharing more with, with you generally about this in, in a short while. But we have a plan, under God, to plant a church next year. And I want to just share the timeline here for our South Manchester church plant. Um, in autumn of this year, Greg, will be seeking to, uh, Greg and Christina will be seeking to develop a group of partners, people who are interested in partnering through prayer and finances. By November, they want to be inviting and encouraging people to think and pray about joining the church plant. By March next year, they will hope to have developed a cohesive team forming the foundation of the plant so that autumn next year, they want to launch and begin public worship gatherings. So there's what we're planning to do under God. What will this mean for us? Same thing it meant for those guys in Antioch. Dependent prayer? Generous support and sending key people. So there will be a cost. We will have to die to ourselves a bit. Greg said to me this week, would it be okay if I mentioned, uh, spoke to this so-and-so, this person, about um, coming to, maybe coming, thinking about coming to the plant? And I said, that person's a great potential person. And inside, I had to die a little bit because I didn't really want him to go. But it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. We may have to die a little bit to ourselves to plant a good church. But we're doing this for his glory, not ours. And we're actually doing it not just to send Greg and Christina off, but, but to do it so that when they grow, we can plant together. So that in collaboration and partnership, we can see more and more communities of light filling this great 
city. So, can I just ask you, uh, friends here, will you get on board with this? Will you pray about it? Make it something that's part of your daily prayers? Will you support it uh, in, in encouragement? And maybe in time we'll have to give, we will have to give some money towards it. And maybe, just maybe, you could be part of that group that goes and starts a new church for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Reading from the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas said, We had to speak the word of God to you. This is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the people heard this, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Father, we are so grateful to you for what you have done for us individually and for what you've done for us as a community. You've done a great thing. You've shown us a beautiful saviour and you've called us to belong to him. And you've incorporated us into his body, your people, the church. And you've given us a new hope and a new start and a new heart and a new love and a new future. And Lord, we pray sincerely that more and more people in Manchester would get that through the power of your Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would build your church as you promised, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. In dependence on you, Lord, we ask for wisdom as a body of people, as members and as leaders, as we think and move tentatively towards this plant in South Manchester next year. Lord Jesus, please would you bless it. Please would you protect it. Please would you provide for it. Please would you prosper it so that much would be made of your name in an area where there's very little gospel witness. We lay this before you now. Together, we join our hearts and ask, Lord, that you would build this church. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.